Americans probably interact with employees of the Transportation Security Administration more than those of any other agency. Behind that workforce are people you don't see as much. One of them has been named Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year from the Senior Executives Association. She's the TSA's Deputy Chief Counsel and the former Assistant Chief Counsel for Employment, Civil Rights, and Labor Policy. Jennifer Ellison joins me now. Ms. Ellison, good to have you on. Good to be here. Thank you. Your career at TSA has really been characterized by dealing with the TSOs and the issues of of the officers that form the core of the agency, fair to say? Yes, absolutely. We handle all employee issues from hire to retire and um, all of the security professionals, including the transportation security officers. And I want to go backwards in time to when they were negotiating the very first contract. I think this is after they voted to become part of the AFGE, if I recall correctly. It was some contention. It took some time to get that established. What did it look like from your standpoint as negotiating on behalf of the agency? I see it in sort of 10-year segments. For the first 10 years of TSA's existence, there was no collective bargaining. The administrators at that time decided that we were a new agency and it wasn't appropriate at that time. However, in 2011, the administrator decided to have limited collective bargaining and limited exclusive representation, and the non-supervisory TSOs elected to have AFGE as their exclusive representative, and we entered into negotiations with them, and in 2012, we achieved the first collective bargaining agreement for TSA and its TSOs, which was really an exciting time participating on that team. We all bonded, for sure, doing that for the first time for the agency. And I think it was successful. And then after that, I proceeded to set up a labor policy group in chief counsel's office to handle all of those issues in partnership with our human capital office. What were the big issues in that negotiation? What is it that the agency needed to have? And what is it that the union and the employees most needed to have? Well, you know, for the agency, of course, security is paramount. And, you know, that was paramount for the employees and the union as well. The union officers are TSA employees, and we're all heading toward the same goal of ensuring mission accomplishment. You know, so some of the limited issues that we had for bargaining the first time were shift bids, annual leave bids, shift trades, things like that. Got it. Because, yeah, I mean, we should probably pause here and say that the job of TSO is a lot harder than it looks to the public, isn't it? It absolutely is. You have to know all of the standard operating procedures. You're dealing with passengers all day long. And, you know, there's a lot to know and a lot to do. There's a rotation throughout the different functions of a screening officer. So there is a lot. Yes. And they're, you know, they're staring at screens and looking for things. Uh, I flew the other day and caught the officer giving a big yawn when my backpack went through. I said, oh, honey, don't yawn now. I mean, there's stuff you got to look at in there. There's, but it came through and she, you know, you can tell how, how hard they work and how long and difficult it is to stare at those screens. And then more recently, there has been a new framework caused by Congress's agreeing that TSO should be paid more in accordance with the GS schedule, which does not apply at TSA, but the equivalent. What was that all about? And also, what are some of the other elements of the workforce experience that uh, Secretary Mayorkas has wanted to bring to TSOs? So I love talking about our new compensation plan because it was so monumental and so important for the workforce and for the agency. Secretary Mayorkas in June 2021 issued a memo that outlined workforce initiatives for TSA, 
Historically, TSA has not been able to keep up with the general schedule because we weren't funded for that. Um, we weren't funded for pay increases commensurate with the general schedule, like within within grade increases. So as a result, employee pay kept falling behind uh, comparators in the federal government. And of course, it created recruitment and retention issues and morale issues and, and the like. So after the secretary issued that memo, we worked to develop the pay plan, worked through the budget process, the justifications, all of that. And Congress approved funding for the pay plan. It was included in the FY23 omnibus appropriations, which was signed this past December. And so in July, we were able to implement the new pay plan, bringing the salaries of TSA workforce to a level equal to their federal counterparts. So this was never, you know, an effort to get something extra. This was to bring us up to the level of federal comparators for the important work that our security professionals do to accomplish the mission each and every day. But you had the funds from Congress as well as the mandate to do that. So it wasn't like you had to go scrounging elsewhere to pay for an increase that Congress had demanded. That's right. Congress provided the funding and the appropriations. And, you know, this initiative was just so important for all segments of the TSA workforce. So we talk about the TSOs who we see at the airports every day. But um, like you said, at the start of this, there are other people behind that as well. Other security professionals, the federal air marshals, canine handlers, explosive specialists, inspectors, cybersecurity specialists, intelligence analysts. And I can keep going. You know, everyone that contributes to our security mission, this pay plan was was really, really important. We're speaking with Jennifer Ellison. She's Deputy Chief Counsel at the Transportation Security Administration and Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year, as cited by the Senior Executives Association. And you have a long time in labor relations, labor policy, compared to what you understand of your counterparts, say, in the private sector or even in agencies that have the GS schedule. What are the challenges in labor work for a federal agency such as TSA? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, pay was so fundamental, you know, at the basic level, it's life changing for each individual employee. And no matter how committed to the mission you are, you still need fair pay, right? You still need fair pay commensurate with your work as a federal security professional. And, you know, for mission accomplishment at the agency, you don't want to lose experienced security professionals because TSA isn't able to compete with the federal agency next door. So, this was just so important for us. You know, we've had attrition and morale issues due to the pay. So the new pay plan will enable TSA to better recruit and retain top candidates. It's also, you know, going to free up some resources because when you're constantly in a cycle of recruit, hire, train for significant numbers of employees, it takes a lot of resources that could otherwise be used for other positive enhancements for the workforce. So, for example, the TSO new hire training has a cost, time, money, space, trainers. I know you had my colleague on a few months ago to talk about Academy West, our new training academy in Las Vegas. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, yes, and we conduct new hire training there. So with a decrease in our attrition rates, rather than constantly cycling through new hire training for large numbers of new employees, those facilities at Academy West, those trainers can be used for other initiatives like increased training on the use of advanced technology or increased training on passenger engagement, things like that. So, you know, we're really excited about all of it. All right. And with respect to the on-the-job day-to-day issues, besides pay, earlier you said the negotiations involve shift selection and so forth. I remember one of the early complaints 
of the TSOs was that they had random shifts, and that was thought to be a security measure, so they couldn't, I don't know, maybe get too palsy-walsy with frequent flyers or something, that you know, people that take the same shuttle every week, that type of thing, a long time ago. What does it look like now in terms of morale? I mean, have things improved, and are some of those issues out of the way? Shift selection, vacation selection, the other things that go into the component of a good experience besides the salary? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the elements of the Secretary's workforce initiatives was also expanding the labor framework. And, you know, as I said earlier, we are outside Title V generally. So our transportation security officers are not under Chapter 71, which is the labor management statute, the chapter of Title V. So part of this initiative in the last two years was um, expanding the labor framework. It's under the administrator's authorities under the Aviation and Transportation Security Act and expanding the labor framework to mirror more generally Title V, Chapter 71 rights for the union and for the employees. So, you know, as part of that, the administrator issued a new labor determination once we got all the funding in December, and he issued the new labor determination the very next day after enactment of the appropriations bill. And, you know, since then, TSA and AFGE have been working cooperatively together, agreeing to several memoranda of agreement, and we're now currently engaged in collective bargaining or right. an expanded agreement. Okay, and what's the timeline for that one? Hopefully, sometime soon, we'll have a new CBA. We're working through all the issues. Obviously, there's more issues this time than before, because before, as I said, it was limited to 10 or 11 issues. Um, and now it's the full gamut, as if we were under Chapter 71. Right, because some of those negotiations take hundreds of, there's hundreds of clauses. Yes, and we're working through them. We're working through all the issues, and we hope to have an agreement sometime soon. Sounds like you've got a pretty good team with you, too, huh? You know, nothing of this magnitude gets done by one person, of course. So there was amazing collaboration um, with the department and within TSA, um, the Human Capital Office, the Chief Finance Office, and um, my office, the Office of Chief Counsel, worked in partnership really the whole way through to ensure success. So it was a fantastic effort by everyone involved. My general law team is the best in the business, and they were super committed to the success of these initiatives as well. So I just want to thank them too. And you can't forget the administrator's leadership in making okay. all of this happen. Administrator Pekoski was an amazing champion, and I'm fortunate to have played a part in all of it. Jennifer Ellison is Deputy Chief Counsel at the Transportation Security Administration and Outstanding Senior Executive Professional of the Year from the Senior Executives Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.